Well, good morning, New Day. It's so good to see you guys. Thanks for being here with us in person and online. We are so glad you decided to join us as we continue our current teaching series called Christ the King, where if you're new, this is a study through the Gospel of Matthew. Our text this week is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And in these verses, we see the king's teaching on love. Now, what I want you to understand today is that this is not just some like general teaching on love. That's just not what we're dealing with here. To understand our teaching today in its original context, we've got to remember that last week, what we saw was the king's teaching on revenge. And we got to see this week's teaching as Jesus intended, which is, this is a teaching on love, and this teaching on love is the alternative to revenge. So last week, revenge. This week, love. These are the two different ways in which we can respond to the common hurts of this life. Sadly, on this side of eternity, people are going to hurt us. Maybe you live with hurt from a previous marriage. Maybe you live with hurt from the marriage you're in now. Maybe you live with hurts from childhood. It could have been something like your parents just showed more attention uh, to that other sibling, uh, or it could be something really serious. Uh, heaven forbid, uh, maybe you were molested as a child or experienced physical abuse or what have you. And if that's the case, please know my heart goes out to you. Maybe you live with hurt because someone's lied about you or always assumes the worst about you. Maybe somebody embarrassed you. Uh, it was public and, and you're just so wounded from that. Maybe you have an unresolved conflict. You were hoping that, you know, you'd say sorry, they'd say sorry, and then you'd be able to move on. But everything was just swept under the rug instead. And now there's just kind of this open wound. Or maybe you have hurts that come from work. I mean, how many people just slave at their jobs and they're underappreciated? Or maybe they're taken advantage of and it's just there's this hurt because of it. And then there's some very serious things um, in this life, unfortunately. Maybe you're a victim of adultery or heaven forbid, a victim of rape. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Because on this side of eternity, there's just hurts and pains and kinds of things like this that, that just grieve us so deeply. Now, we're hurt in different ways. We're hurt to varying degrees. But on this side of eternity, there will be hurts. People will hurt us, sadly. And when they do, what we're going to be tempted to do uh, is, is classify them as an enemy and then seek to get revenge. We're going to be tempted to get even, to get them back, to give them a little taste of their own medicine. This is what comes natural. This is what feels right. It's not right, but it feels right. And this is what our culture actually encourages us to do. And it's because revenge is the typical response that we have a saying in our culture, hurt people, hurt people. We have this saying because this is more often than not how people respond to the hurts in their lives. Someone hurts us, we hurt them back. Now, I confessed to you last week that all my favorite movies are revenge movies. And you cheer on those people as they go get their revenge. And you just think, oh, wouldn't that be so satisfying if I got revenge for some of the hurts in my own life? Oh, that'd be great. Well, I just really started thinking about 
what would happen, okay, if I actually went ahead with the revenge? And I noticed at least three different negative effects of retaliating and of revenge. It's not in your notes, but number one, uh, revenge perpetuates the conflict. The Bible says, without fuel, a fire goes out. If you want the conflict to rage on in your life, then go ahead and seek revenge. Go ahead and seek to get even, which what it does, practically speaking, is it adds a bunch of logs to that fire of conflict, and it just perpetuates the conflict. And since human nature is to respond disproportionately to what was done for us, since human nature is to extract a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense, we get them back. But because we responded disproportionately, they now feel the need to get us back. And because they responded disproportionately to us, we feel the need to go ahead and get them back again. And it just perpetuates the conflict. So as great as it sounds, it's actually not so great because revenge perpetuates a conflict. Uh, number two, revenge creates fear and anxiety. All right, you responded disproportionately to whatever was done to you, and that felt great for five seconds, but now what replaces those feelings of gladness that you got them back is worry and anxiety and fear, because guess what? Now they're going to get you back, and you have to worry about that. Number three, uh, revenge causes you to become a bitter person. They say you are what you eat. And let me tell you, when you feast on revenge, a poisonous root of bitterness sprouts in your heart. And you're seeking to go ahead and do something bad to them. And in doing so, you're doing something bad to yourself. So friends, do you see, it seems like, oh, wouldn't this be great to respond spitefully, revengefully? Uh, wouldn't it be great to retaliate? Uh, but the reality is, it's actually something terrible. Now, in light of all this, is it any wonder why Jesus shares with us an alternative to revenge, which is love? Jesus is preaching to a huge crowd of people. He's preaching a sermon that you and I know as the Sermon on the Mount. And he's preaching to people uh, who their normal way of life is if someone gets them, they get them back. They twisted and perverted the meaning of an eye for an eye. That was legislation given to the judges of the nation of Israel to be exercised in court, and it was intended to limit the extent to which someone would be punished. And people just personalized that command, and they began taking revenge. And they thought they were justified in doing it. Like the Bible says, an eye for an eye, I'm going to get you back. And so to people who are used to revenge as a way of life, Jesus comes along and he says, I've got a better way. Let me teach you the better way, and it's the way of love. And this is what we see in our text. Let me read it to you, and then with God's help, I'll do my best to explain it. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
Friends, there's so much here, so let's get right to work breaking it down. If you're taking notes, the first thing we see in our text, we're going to call the error. That's the first thing we see in our text, the error. And we see this in verse 43, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the part we've highlighted in yellow, that is the part where they erred. Now, the first part, that's in the Bible. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, that's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's all throughout the rest of the Old Testament as well. But here's what the people did. And they were mistaken in doing so, but here's what they did. They said, okay, well, if God says, love your neighbor as yourself, then the inference is that we ought to hate our enemy. Love our neighbor, hate our enemy. But here was the problem with their inference. It was totally and completely wrong. Because just as clearly as God had taught, love your neighbor as yourself, he also taught, love your enemy too. And friends, we see this in Exodus chapter 23, verses four to five. Here's how God instructed Israel to respond in relationship to their enemy. He says, respond in a loving way. Take a look. He says, if you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that has strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. So we don't have, uh, most of us don't have donkeys, right? How many donkey owners we got in the house? Yeah, exactly, okay? So this would be more like modern day equivalent of you're driving on your way to work and you see that coworker who you hate broken down on the side of the road. He says, don't just drive on by, pull over and help to offer change your tire. Likewise, through Solomon, God instructed his people in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21. He, he says, if your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. And if they're thirsty, give them water to drink. So this is them responding to the hurts of their life in a loving and kind way. God says, this is how you can love your enemies. Now, friends, here's the deal. They were commanded by God to love their enemies. And did you know they were also forbidden to rejoice when something bad happened to their enemy? So maybe would someone, well, you know, I've, I've, I've done enough. I'm a good person. You know, look how morally upright I am. I, I, I do act in loving ways to my enemy. But then when something bad happens to my enemy, I'm like, yes, you know, God, you got him. This is great. No, not only were they commanded to love their enemy, they were forbidden to celebrate and rejoice at their enemy's downfall. Take a look at what Proverbs 24, 17 to 18 says. Solomon wrote this, don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble, for the Lord will be displeased with you. I believe Solomon learned this from his father, David. Remember how King Saul was trying to kill David year after year after year? Well, God saw to it that Saul got what was coming to him. And Saul's life one day uh, ended. And maybe, like me, you've been confused at David's response. Because he's not running a victory lap around the mountain that Saul was killed on. Saying, yes, yes, he's finally gone. He's dead. This is awesome. Yeah, yay. He's not doing that. What does David do? He, he mourns, he attends the funeral, 
He, he writes a beautiful poem or song uh, in Saul's honor and all this kind of stuff. And, and initially we're confused by such a response until we understand that David knew what God required. He was to love his enemies in obedience to God's command. And not only was he to love his enemy in practical ways by being kind, even to those who were nasty to him, he also knew I'm not to rejoice and celebrate my enemy's downfall for the Lord would be displeased with me if I did. That was David's thinking and he was right. So friends, do you see the error? They believe love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but they were wrong because the Old Testament all along had taught them to not just love their neighbor as themselves, but to also love their enemy. Now, this leads us to the second thing we see in our text. So if you're taking notes, your second fill in the blank is this. The second thing we see in our text is the explanation. Because they had an erroneous view of what God expected of them, because they had an erroneous understanding of what the Old Testament actually taught, Jesus felt the need to come along uh, explaining to them what God actually required and what the Old Testament scriptures actually taught. And this is what we see in verse 44. So, so Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And now Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. And now he gives them one great practical way to do this. Pray for those who persecute you. But friends, Jesus' command, in a nutshell, is just to teach exactly what the Old Testament taught all along. So Jesus didn't come along and say, oh, you know what, I've got this new teaching, it's completely different than what God taught the Israelites in the Old Testament, I'm coming with a new teaching, a different teaching. No, Jesus only comes and reiterates exactly what was taught in the Old Testament for all those years. And he says, the right thing to do is to love your enemies. So, so here's what they thought. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus says, that's wrong. Here's what's right. Let me explain to you what's right. It's not love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It's love your neighbor and your enemy. And so this is the explanation Jesus gives. And friends, now that you've seen the explanation, let's go ahead and note together the third thing that we see in our text. And we're going to call this the evidence. The evidence. Jesus says this, when you love your enemies by showing them God's kindness, by not rejoicing in their troubles, and by praying for them uh, when they persecute you, you show the evidence that you are truly a child of God. And we see this in verse 45. Take a look. Jesus says, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now pause right there. I don't like to interrupt when I'm reading a verse, but pause right there. When Jesus says, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, he's saying this, love your enemies as a way to prove that you are a son of your father in heaven. He's saying, love your enemies to give evidence that you're truly a child of God. And now he explains what he means. Here's what Jesus says of God. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So here's what Jesus is saying. God is kind to his enemies. So you should be too. 
You say, Mike, where'd you get that? How is God kind to his enemies? By making the sun rise and by making the rain fall. Well, friends, it's simple. This is what theologians refer to as common grace. That is God's goodness extended to all of humanity, even his enemies. Friends, God causes that sun to shine on the earth and God causes that rain to fall on the earth. And only because God is good to us in that way can we grow food and sustain life. And so God, as a part of his common grace, just blesses all of humanity with sunlight and rain, which is so essential to growing food and sustaining life. So now do you get it? Jesus is saying, do you see how God is kind to everyone, even his enemies? And because God is our example to follow, which we'll get to shortly, this is what we are to do with our enemies. And when we do this, we demonstrate the requisite evidence that we are truly a child of God. Friends, when we choose hatred over love and revenge over kindness, do you know who we look like in terms of family resemblance? We're resembling the devil when we respond that way. But when we choose love over hatred and kindness over revenge, you know who we look like when we do that? We bear the family resemblance of God. And so Jesus says, love your enemies to, to show the evidence that you truly are a child of God. I just saw a baby at a little church outing I was at, a little homeschool outing the other week. One of these little cute, precious babies looked just like his father. I said, oh, that cute little baby, he bears the family resemblance. Well, when God looks down from heaven to see the way in which we respond to the hurts that we receive on this side of eternity, he is looking to see if there's any family resemblance. Do we respond with love over hatred? Do we respond with kindness over revenge? When we do, we show ourselves to be truly sons of our Father who is in heaven. Sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven. All right, friends, now that you've seen the evidence, let's note the fourth thing we see in our text, and we're going to call this the expectation. The expectation. And here we see that God expects his children to love better than the children of the devil. Take a look at verses 46 to 47. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your, your brothers, you could say, if you greet only your friends, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, friends, Jesus here refers to two different groups of people. And please understand, the Gentiles represent those who are pagans uh, outside the community of faith of Israel. And then the tax collectors are those Israelites who are practical pagans because they were corrupt and they extracted more taxes than they were supposed to. They were dishonest. Uh, they exploited people. So, so Jesus refers to two groups of outcasts, two groups of people who were outside the community of faith, actual pagans and then practical pagans. And Jesus says, if you love only like the pagans, do you really think God's going to be looking down from heaven going, 
I am so impressed with the way you love. I mean, you are loving according to the absolute lowest standard that anyone could love by. I just want to reward you because you're so amazing. Jesus is saying, what reward do you think you'll have if you only love as the pagans or the practical pagans do? No reward comes from that. God expects his children to love better than the pagans. He expects his children to love better than the children of the devil. We who belong to Jesus are to love with a higher standard. So Jesus is saying it's never enough to, uh, for believers to merely do the good that unbelievers do. We have to do better. This is God's expectation. So not only do we choose love over revenge, but when we love, we love at a higher standard. It's a love that comes from God. It's a love that's modeled after God's own love for us. It's a love that extends to everyone, even our enemies, even towards those who hurt us in this life. Friends, now that you've seen the expectation, let's note the fifth and final thing that we see in our text, which is the example. The example. In our last point, Jesus has said, the pagans, they are not our example. The irreligious people of this world who are kind to those who are kind to them and who love those who love them, the pagans, they, they are not our example. That was the last point. Now, in this point, Jesus points out to us who is. In this point, he says, they're not your example. Here's who is your example. And we see who our example is in verse 48. Take a look. Jesus says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, we are to love in the perfect way that our heavenly father loves. We don't take our cues from culture. I mean, think about it. Do we take our values from culture? No. Do we take our morals from culture? No. Do we take our worldview from culture? No. Now, the sad reality is many Christians are so influenced by TV shows and, and movies and all these kinds of things and the way of the world and, and all this stuff that, that practically speaking, sometimes we have the morals, the values, and the worldview of this world. But is this the way it ought to be? Come on, church. No. No. In the same way, ought we to love like the world? No, we ought to love like God. He is our example. So understand, Jesus is not frustrating his hearers with an unachievable ideal to be perfect. Rather, he's simply challenging his audience to grow in obedience to God's will, to become more like him, specifically in regard to how we love so friends, God is our example. And the way he loves is the example that we are to emulate. So when we get hurt, and notice I'm not saying if we get hurt, I'm saying when we get hurt. Because it's going to happen on this side of eternity. When we get hurt, we each have to decide who we're going to choose to respond like. Are we going to respond to the hurts of this life like the devil? Or are we going to respond to the hurts of this life like God the Father. Let me help you make up your mind. Friends, Satan's way is hate that leads to revenge. 
God's way is love that leads to kindness. Satan's way perpetuates the conflict. God's way, on the other hand, often puts an end to conflict because you go ahead and be kind to someone who's been nasty to you, and now they feel ashamed about the way they've been behaving towards you, and oftentimes the behavior stops. Satan's way causes fear and anxiety and worry because you retaliate against them, and then you got to worry about what they're going to do back to you. God's way gives you absolutely nothing to be afraid of, absolutely nothing to worry over, absolutely nothing to fear. Satan's way causes the poisonous root of bitterness to grow in your heart, but God's way is round up or we'd be gone for the soul. When someone hurts you and you respond with God's love and kindness, it just kills off the poisonous root of bitterness in your heart and God just sets you free. So again, you've got to decide, am I going to choose to respond to the hurts of this life uh, the way the devil does, or am I going to choose to respond to the hurts of this life the way God commands? God has a better way to respond to the hurts of this life. God says living with hurt and pain, I mean, that's bad enough. Do you really feel the need to go ahead and make the situation worse? Friends, please understand that we cannot go back in time all right, if only Superman was real, we could fly around the world and reverse things and go back in time, and wouldn't that be great? Well, unfortunately, uh, that's not reality. We can't go back in time and prevent that thing from happening that now has caused us to live with hurt and pain. We can't do that, but here's what we can do. We can make sure we don't make the situation any worse than it already is. And the way we either make the situation worse or make the situation better, it's determined by how we respond to the hurt. Do we respond like the devil? Do we respond like God the Father? God says, don't make it worse by responding with hate. Make it better by responding with love. Now, here's the deal. Only believers are empowered by God to live this way. For those of you who are not currently serving the Lord, and no, I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Y'all are just a bunch of shadows to me, okay? Because of the way the lights are. And for those of you who are tuned in online, I I'm not looking at anyone in particular, okay? Just, but for those of you who are not following the Lord, let me say, I'm so glad you're here. We literally have a church so that you can get to know God and enter into a relationship with him. Uh, but for those of you who are, who are not followers of Jesus uh, yet at the moment, I want to talk to you for a couple minutes. Please don't think you can just leave here with the ability to begin loving as God commands in Scripture. You say, well, I don't know about God and salvation and Jesus and forgiveness of sins, so let me just kind of forget that. But you know what? I kind of like what you're saying. I don't want bitterness in my heart. I don't want to perpetuate conflict. Uh, so you know what? I'm just going to leave here, and I'm going to begin loving as God says I ought to love. Well, friends, that would be a futile attempt. Because here's the deal you don't yet have the nature that has the capacity or ability to go ahead and respond to the hurts of this life the way that God commands. When you come into right relationship with God and Jesus forgive your sins, the Bible says you become a new creation in Christ. And the reason you're a new creation is because God gives you a new nature. The nature you have now, it's bent on sin, it's bent on self, it's bent on, you know, revenge. 
But then God gives this new nature, and it's bent on obeying God, submitting to God, doing what God says. It's bent on love and kindness over hatred and revenge. So to try to go ahead and begin loving as God commands without God supernaturally empowering you would be the same as to get in your car after service and try to drive home after someone's taken the engine out or the battery out. Now, I got to say that nowadays with all these electric cars, okay? But if you don't have what you need, you can't get home. And if you don't have what you need, you can't love as God commands. So what you need is a new nature, one that is able to respond with love instead of hate, one that is able to respond with kindness instead of revenge. And God would love to give you that nature today before you leave. But the Bible says right now, your sin has created this barrier between you and God, and your sin has separated you from God. In fact, friends, this is the context of the teaching that we've studied today. Jesus is talking to the people he's preaching to on the hillside on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's talking to them about sin. Jesus wants everyone in the audience to be saved. But he's speaking to people who are self-righteous and who don't see that they're sinners and who don't see their need for a savior. And so Jesus says, what do I do? They need to understand that they're sinners who need a savior. I can't just say the savior has come. And everyone's going to run to me. No, no, no. First, they got to understand that they're sinful and that they need a Savior. And so what does Jesus do? He gives them six examples of their sinfulness. And friends, today is week six of these six examples. Take a look. In example number one, Jesus says, you guys are guilty of murder. In example two, he says, you're guilty of adultery. In example three, he says, you're guilty of groundless divorce. In example four, he says, you're guilty of not keeping your word. In example five, which we covered last week, he he said, you're guilty of seeking revenge. And today, example number six, he says, you're guilty of not loving as God requires. So to these self-righteous people, Jesus says, I need you to understand something. You stand guilty of sin before God. And friends, the reason that these words were preserved in Scripture for us is so that we could have the same realization 2,000 years later that they had back then. God wants us to see that we are sinful, that we stand guilty before Him, and that we too need a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus. Friends, if we'll do some honest introspection today, we'll quickly see that we share the guilt of Jesus's original audience. I mean, we have the anger and hatred in our heart that God counts as murder. We have the lust in our hearts and in our minds and in our eyes that God counts as adultery. Groundless divorce, well, as we covered just a couple weeks ago, that's one of the predominant characteristics of American society. And in addition to that, we break our word. We seek revenge, and we definitely don't love the way that God intends. And I bring all this up to say God counts any of this and all of this as sin, and sin separates us from God. And this is an important realization to have, because if we don't, we'll never see our need for a Savior. We'll never see the need to call out to Jesus to say, forgive me of my sins. Make me right with God. Remove the barrier between me and God. 
You say, Mike, what do I do? I don't want that barrier there any longer. Well, friends, you simply call out to Jesus for help in getting right standing with God. You see, even though it's our sin that deserves to be punished, Jesus went ahead and took the punishment that we deserved upon himself on the cross. And since our sins have been punished through Christ, God will forgive us of our sins when we ask him to. And there's no perversion of justice on God's part in letting us go free. Because to satisfy justice, sin has to be punished. But friends, our sins have been punished. They've just not been punished by us. They've been punished by Christ. So there's no perversion of justice here. So friends, I would implore you to call out to God for forgiveness of sins today if you never have. Because here's the deal. You either have God count Jesus's punishment on the cross as your punishment for sin, or you will be punished for your sins for all eternity in hell. Those are the two options that God gives. God is just, so sin must be punished. But God is loving, which is why he's made a way where our sin can be punished with us still going free. So friends, the application of the sermon today is call out to God for forgiveness so that you can receive eternal life. If you'll do that today, God will give you a new nature. He'll give you a nature that is equipped to respond with love instead of revenge. One that's equipped to respond with kindness instead of hatred. God wants that for you today. And if you want that for you today, please join me in our closing prayer. Those of you online, everyone here in person, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And in the privacy and stillness of your heart, would you just say something along these lines to God? Say, Heavenly Father, I didn't even need all six examples to convince me that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I just found myself in those examples over and over and over to be proven a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I understand that sin deserves punishment. And I understand that because you are a just God and not a corrupt God, that you require that sin be punished. And God, this would mean really bad news for me, except for Jesus. God, because you sent Jesus, I don't have to personally pay the punishment for sin. Because Jesus climbed up on that cross willingly. He was nailed to that cross willingly to take the punishment for sin that I deserved. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that uh, Jesus was willing to go ahead and lay down his life for me. God, I'm so grateful. God, I, I want to go free. I don't deserve it. But God, since you've made it possible, I I'm taking you up on the offer. So God, I ask that you'd forgive me of my sins. Count all my sins punished through Christ so that I can go free. God, I want to receive eternal life today. God, I want to receive the new nature that comes with the forgiveness of sins today. God, I can't respond to the hurts of this life with love apart from that new nature, apart from the empowering that comes by your Holy Spirit. So God, 
Forgive me of my sins. Grant to me eternal life. God, bless me with that new nature. And God, empower me to go ahead and live as you command. And God, I'll be careful to give you all the praise. God, I'll be careful to give you the praise as the next time I hurt, I supernaturally respond. Instead of responding in the flesh with anger and with hatred, I'll respond in the spirit by showering that person who does not deserve it with your very own loving kindness. And God, I'll do it because that's how you related to me when I was your enemy. You showered the loving kindness upon me by sending Jesus. And God, I didn't deserve that. But since you gave it anyway, that's how I can respond with loving kindness to anyone who has hurt me. You did it for me. So God, with your help, I'm going to do it for others. And I give you praise for how that's going to change forever the trajectory of my life, how it's going to change my family, my friendships, how it's going to change how things are at work. God, I give you praise. I ask for your help and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.